I just changed what I truly believed about myself. I went, wow, I am a criminal and a liar and I'm going to change it. Like that was it. Mm -hmm. And I think most people don't ever sit down and write that down. I've done a lot of good things and I've done a lot of bad things. But it's like, I think when you face them and you move through them, I think when you're prepared to address them, I call it the secret life. Everybody has, you know, the life they live out here, and then everyone has the life they live inside. That's Frank Shamrock, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? What's going on? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. This is a podcast, my podcast. So good to see you guys today. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to thank everybody out there who checked out the new edition of Finding Ultra, the new revised and updated version of my memoir. I'm super proud of it and just so glad to hear that so many of you out there are enjoying it. Uh, but for those of you who have been waiting patiently for the Kindle edition you may know we've had some bumps along this road. That release was delayed for a bunch of completely confounding reasons, but it is finally available on Amazon. And the good news is I'm told it's available worldwide. I'm also told that if you purchase the original version of the book in Kindle format, that you can auto update that version without any additional purchase. However, some of you out there have been having issues with that, with that updating process. And I'm told that it will all be worked out very soon. Uh, I'm told a lot of things. And uh, I know there have been some kinks in this system. All of this is out of my control. And I can tell you that I'm doing everything I can on my end to get these issues resolved uh, as quickly as possible. So thanks again for your patience. Also, the Plant Power Way Italia, our new cookbook, brand new cookbook, is on the horizon In case you missed it, I posted a fun little trailer video for the book on Instagram and YouTube the other day. It's the first of a few versions uh, that I'm going to be sharing over the coming weeks. People seem to enjoy it. Uh, uh, Got a few laughs out of it. Lots of interest in me growing a mustache. So I guess I'm going to take that to heart. In any event, the book really is amazing. If you enjoyed our first cookbook, The Plant Power Way, I really think you're going to dig this one. It will take your kitchen next level and it's available for pre-order now on amazon or wherever you buy books and it would mean a ton to us if you place that pre-order today pre-orders are super important in influencing bookstore purchases and visibility and long-term viability of the book so i would greatly appreciate it and thank you very much for that did i mention i have frank shamrock on the show the great ufc champion this is a good one uh this guy's story is unreal. It's inspiring. Uh, It's a story about transcending an upbringing marked by abuse, violence, poverty, prison, really a set of circumstances I think very few could overcome to ultimately become one of the world's greatest fighters, a true pioneer, really a legend in the world of modern combat sports. And Frank's story, what was required of him to face and conquer his past, his demons, his challenges, I think is as instructive as it is electrifying. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that 
Most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible. They're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, 
And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Frank Shamrock. Dubbed the legend in the early days of mixed martial arts, Frank competed in this emergent era of MMA, of UFC, in which there were there were like no gloves, no weight classes, basically no rules. And Frank was the true first breakout champion and widely considered the sport's first complete mixed martial arts fighter. He was the world's first UFC middleweight champion, the first Mexican-American MMA champion. And when the dust settled on his career, he walked away with four world titles and two world records for the fastest championship victories in history. And as the only athlete in sports history to win every major league title in MMA. In recent years, he's been a fight commentator, a fight promoter, a spokesperson for the UFC and Strike Force, a public speaker, an entrepreneur, a mentor, a philanthropist. He has a nonprofit called Shamrock Way and an author. He wrote two books, Mixed Martial Arts for Dummies and his memoir, Uncaged. All of this is amazing, but what is most interesting to me is the extraordinary journey he undertook to get to this place, overcoming a childhood and a past that I think would have broken the best among us. So this is a conversation about, it's about the human spirit. It's about Frank's journey, how he did it, and really what can be gleaned from his experience to break through the limits we impose on our own potential to achieve excellence in any area of life, irrespective of circumstances. So let's talk to him. Cool, dude. You ready to go? Yeah. Let's do it, man. Nice to nice to finally meet you, Frank. Thanks for coming out to do this. Yeah, same here. Yeah. You first came across, I'm not like a huge fight guy. Like, uh, I know a little bit about MMA and I, I've had a I think I've had a couple fighters on the show before. Well, I'm friends with Mac Danzig, who's been on okay. the show before. Yeah. Um, but I think you really kind of uh, uh, came on my radar um, when my friend Ryan Holiday's book, Egos the Enemy, came out and, and the whole like plus minus equal theory, uh, which was uh, eloquently described in that book. Um, that got me interested in you and your background. And then I saw you on our friend James Altucher's show, who is the person who connected us. And in an, in an additional sort of cool little small worldism, that same day that you did the podcast with James, right after that, he had Anthony Irvin on, who mm-hmm. you, you took a picture with him, mm-hmm. who's a friend of mine who's been on the show as well. And nice. he was super stoked to meet you. I know that. So yeah, he's cool. I was in New York a couple months ago and did James's show. And, and Steve and his producer was like, you gotta meet Frank, you gotta meet Frank. So here we are, man, psyched cool. to talk to you. So let's, uh, um, 
I think the let's just start at the beginning, man. You have a, a fascinating background, um, and I think above and beyond just your pure athletic accomplishments, were, which are extraordinary. What I'm most interested in is is how you overcame all the obstacles that that you had to face growing up, and and even more than that, perhaps is how you've kind of channeled what you've learned and the experiences that you've had to benefit other people. So let's uh, let's sure. unpack it. Yeah. Man. Well, um, let's see. What I have now is a, an awareness of kind of what's going on, mm-hmm. and what I realized as youth is I didn't. I had no idea what was going on. Of course, on. you don't have any perspective. Yeah, there's zero, time. and, and <laughs> yeah. you grow up in your environment. And mine was just jacked. I mean, it was completely jacked, unbeknownst to me. Mm-hmm. So um, all of my talents and skills were just completely wasted and just erratic. Um, but as soon as I got into this martial arts lifestyle and I started living and kind of developing this way of understanding how to live, then I, then everything changed for me. Then mm-hmm. I, I had a whole life, I had a whole existence, I had real friends, I had real family, I had real community. And before all that was not really in existence, it was just kind of this fragile thing that semi-existed. So um, the minute I became successful and the minute I got stable, you know, I thought like, gosh, we need to do something. Like we should try mm-hmm. to <laughs> like flip this and help people. Um, and that's what brought me into teaching of the martial arts and kind of developing that side of my person. Um, and that was like the best thing for me was just teaching martial arts, like connecting with people through teaching. And because I was so passionate about it, because I was so, mm-hmm. you know, in belief of it that people, you know, they loved it. They followed me, they learned, they were, you know, interested in it. They were compelled by it. Um, and it was a valued study because at the end, both we learned how to kick everyone's butt, you know, and create this amazing fighting system. Um, but we also created this, you know, format for living that's super successful. Right. And that's the plus minus equal thing. That's the right, right, right. Structure. Is that is that like the core of like what is that blueprint? It's everything that happened to me in my martial arts journey, which is one day I showed up at a martial arts school and I was taught like the basics of discipline and respect and mm-hmm. honor. And like those were as a young man, the stuff you see in movies and you're like, oh, that's amazing. But mm-hmm. you don't really believe it's true until you're bowing to somebody and they're beating you down. And all uh-huh. of a sudden you're like, wow, that's real stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so it's just all of those sequential steps of the stuff that I learned is this way that I call the warrior's code, the way I think about things. And that is, you know, if you, it doesn't matter what you approach. It doesn't matter business, life, social. If you, you know, if you enter it with certain principles and ideas about yourself and about the situation, um, you can do whatever you want with it. You can mm-hmm. make it bad, good. You know, you can achieve your mission. You can give it away. You can do whatever you want. But none of that can exist without understanding discipline and and really harnessing willingness, right? Like you have to be willing to do the work, that right? Was, you <laughs> and you, and you can't bestow that upon yeah. an individual. That has to be a self-generated yeah. notion. That's all from inside. That's mm-hmm. all personal. And, and I call it divination. I call it the moment you go, oh, I'm an idiot, or oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm ready. I'm not. I'm d- 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 whatever the decision is. Uh-huh. For me, it was I was sitting in prison. I was like, oh my goodness, I've, I'm all those things they told me. I thought I was right. There's an honesty. <laughs> yeah, with your, like a, a willingness a to look in the mirror and, yeah. and really be honest with yourself about where you're at, as opposed to fronting. Yeah, and in fighting, it's so easy because you get to face it. 
on a daily. Right. I mean, and then, the, the, <laughs> the most, you know, immediate, you know, dose yeah. of humility you could possibly yeah. have. Right? Immediate feedback mm-hmm. daily. You're like, Ugh, okay, that's not working. That's bad. Yeah, that's of, of not value. And then when you compete, you get the same immediate feedback, both physically and then socially. Mm-hmm. What's amazing is that you even, you're even sitting here. I mean, <laughs> I agree you know, that. like you were, you were destined to become a yeah. statistic, right? Yeah. And I would imagine there's people even that that had the fortuitous occurrence to fall into a martial arts school after having weathered something similar to what you had to go through and still don't make it out, right? So why do you think you were able to, to uh, you know, to first of all, be able to hear what was being said to you, uh, to be honest with yourself about where you were at and then exercise the discipline to get to work and rebuild your life? I mean, I didn't hear it until the end. You know, until I was in prison and I was like, okay, I'm doing the math. There's oh, no way it's out. Pain. There's literally no way <laughs> yeah, out. No. Like I was like, what about this? So like, there's Well, you could have been a no career criminal. You could have just been a, out. you know, uh, yeah. in and out, in and out I mean, of prison. You know, my, my first stepdad, Joe, was, was this Irish dude and he was like, work it, get it done. And, you know, he taught me, I came from this hippie family of whatever, do it, we, mm-hmm. you know, don't worry about anything. We'll live off the government and just kind of chill. Well, let's go back there. I want to I wanna kind of really understand, you know, those early years. So what was it like? What was going on? Well, my, um, my mom had uh, four kids by the time she was 19, 19 mm-hmm. or 20. And she came from a Jehovah's Witness, you know, community, which was basically her mom had run off with a preacher at some point who was a door-to-door guy. And all of a sudden she went from middle-aged, you know, or middle-class, you know, wonderful going to school existence to living in this, you know, Jehovah's Witness culture. Uh-huh. Was that, is, were you in the Bay Area then? Where, where was this? Um, this was in Los Angeles. So uh-huh. I was born in Santa Monica oh, okay. at the UCLA, UCLA Medical Center. Uh-huh. And, um, but then my mom moved up north and she moved to Redding and Anderson, California, which were like small towns. Uh, I'm assuming to get away from the religion and get away from the whole uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I grew up, what my first memories were in um, Redding, California, which is like a small rural town right. in central California. And, you know, we lived in the projects. We were like, you know, just <laughs> welfare kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, uh, and and so, you know, at some point it, it becomes kind of a bit of a nightmare, though, right? Like abuse and, you know, getting locked in the closet and all these things that, you know, I read about as I sort of dug into your story. I mean, you know, it's it sounds like horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. To me, it was, um, I, I had a wake up moment when I moved in with our stepdad, Joe, you know, I was like eight or nine, uh, maybe I was eight. Um, and, you know, I remember he, him directing me in the closet, you know, you get in the closet, you know, mm-hmm. I remember the first consciousness coming that uh, he was putting me in the closet. Um, unbeknownst to me, I found out 30 years later, it was my mom. My mom was since I was a baby, putting me in the closet. Mm-hmm. And it was like this thing, you want to act out? It will shut you down. Right. And it was a very effective. And were you the oldest or where did you fall? I was the um, last to youngest. Uh-huh. So I have a younger sister and I have an older brother and then I have one older sister. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was last to youngest. And I don't know what the deal was. I think I, I had a lot of energy. I think because of my athleticism and stuff, I think I had more energy than others. Right. So, <laughs> and she didn't know how to corral that. <laughs> so know, like locking you she, in the closet. Yeah. She didn't know how to shut it down. So she, she uh-huh. put me in the closet. And then how long after that before you start kind of getting in trouble? It was about seven or eight. I think it's because my brain just turned on. 
like all of a sudden I was conscious and I was conscious of these barriers and things that were happening. And, um, and I see it happening in my daughter. She's now very conscious. She's mm-hmm. nine and she's like, bing, she right. understands what's she's going on. Now. If I started yeah, locking her yeah. in the closet, she'd be like, yo dad, <laughs> what are you doing? And she'd uh-huh. be insane. So um, it was right about this time that I started just, I couldn't control myself emotionally. It was like seven or eight, eight and a half. And I would just fall apart. I would go to do things like athletically or socially, and I would just have these, mm-hmm. you know, social breakdowns, mis- emotional breakdowns. Um, so I, I was seeing all these shrinks and therapists and like outside people um, to help me. And I, I, nobody knew what was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong because I didn't know that being locked in a closet was not normal. Right. So when they're saying what's going on at home, you're like, it's I'm like, fine. What are you talking about? It's normal. <laughs> normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're in the closet on Thursday. And did the shrinks come in because of school or? Yeah, because like, I'd have these breakdowns right. at school and I, mm-hmm. I was excelling. Like I'd be getting straight A's, but then there'd be some, you know, confrontation or some physical moment that I couldn't comp- physical deal with and I'd right. freak out. Right. And so they Were would send me- Were you getting in fights that early? Fights, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. People picked on me because uh-huh. I was a, a victim of abuse. Like if you, if you picked on me, I would freak out, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't want to be abused. So that button's be... just getting pushed and you're just yeah. reacting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was very young, so I didn't know. You know, I just knew that when it was time to- defend you know you just went all right you went all in but that's interesting you were a good student though nonetheless you were yeah. able to like silly smart yeah i could i read all the books i went home i was like a super nerd i went home i read all the books I right read, i you know i would show up in class i knew everything you know i was like yeah. i was the kid disrupting the class because i had nothing to do at home uh-huh yeah there was no tv there was no social interaction so i went home i read the whole book right yeah <laughs> so when did when does when do you get into scruffs with the law uh, that was about nine. Mm-hmm. About nine, I started early. getting in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting what, like in. shoplifting? Or like, what were you doing? Yeah, uh-huh. I would shoplift. I would shoplift alcohol. I would, uh, right. you know, I would go into a store and drink alcohol in the back. Like, I would oh, steal things. Stealing Do you was think, like, looking back on that now, is that was that some form of a cry for help? Like, like an, an yeah. unconscious desire to, like, Yeah, and I think a pushback on the, the, the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't... Like it wasn't normal. It didn't feel good. I, I didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. I felt good stealing things. Right. Like I felt good about that. Like I was totally fine. Uh huh. You know I mean? No, like, no I, moral dilemma no over zero. that. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, like, yeah. I got this stuff, and then I'd get in trouble and be like, but that's so wrong. Uh huh. Because I really felt okay. Like it felt okay. Yeah. That's how messed up things were. For I me. mean, in, in in the in the household, so you're getting locked in the closet. I mean, was the was there. Uh, some physical abuse, sexual, like what was it? What was the- Just uh, an overabundance of emotions and people freaking out and, you know, you get hit, you kneel in the hallway for hours. You know, mm-hmm. Joe had us kneel in the hallway. We'd kneel on your knee and put your put your nose on the wall for oh, like wow. four hours oh, in the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> and then the world That's would a different kind around. of discipline. Yeah, and the world would go on around you and you'd just be kneeling in the hallway. And like, if you sat down on your heels, you'd get screamed at. Uh-huh. So it was like a whole- you know, and he was, you know, the poor guy went to Vietnam as a young man, you know, fought his heart out and came back and everyone hated him. Yeah. You know? he, so he, he turned own, alcohol obviously, yeah, and you don't, demons. You, you and, don't, yeah, you don't, you don't treat your family that way. Yeah, I was kneeling in the hallway when I was like nine years old, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about my punishments and, you know, and coming from a, from a family before that, that was without a father without leadership. And my mom was like, do whatever you want. We're hippies, you know, we, right. you know, uh, have fun. Uh, it just completely, you know, made me, you know, push back. I was. Uh-huh. I and was, did your mom? How did did your mom survive that? Like, how is she around now? Yeah, 
Yeah. Mom's still alive. She's in East Texas and she's, uh-huh. she's chilling. So, uh, all right. So you're shoplifting. Yeah. You're stealing booze <laughs> and stuff like that. It's, at some point though, <clears throat> like juvenile hall kind of enters the picture, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I eventually stolen some weed from my neighbor's uh, pouch on his 10 speed because I knew that he was selling because uh-huh. but the younger brother told me and we ended up getting arrested at the uh, pond or park or something. But I got 11 days at the, what was that? Yeah, I got 11 days at juvenile hall. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I got taken away from my family. And yeah, and that was the first time where I was like, talk to other kids about you know, what was going on. Cause these were all the bad kids. Right. So I was like, ah, oh, bad kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> How we doing? And I was uh-huh. checking in and giving them, you know, here's what's happening. And they were like, are you kidding me? Like, uh, yeah, I read somewhere. Yeah, they were like, like, what are you oh, talking wait, about? You, wait, you don't get locked in a closet? I'm like, like you're not you're living like, in the backyard in a uh-huh. tarp? And they're like, what is, what's, they're like, what are you talking about? Uh-huh. And it was the first time where I was like, I, I had no idea that, that that wasn't happening to other kids. Right. And that they weren't, you know. It's being, just your normal. That was my normal. Mm-hmm. And, and is that yeah. is that when you kind of got the speech about, uh, hey, listen, if you keep getting into trouble, you're going to have to live here all the time? And you thought, well, that, that doesn't sound so Basically, bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, you know, the, it would, and I'll never forget it. They were like, listen, if you continue to do this, we'll take you from your home. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, that sounds thank good. you. Like, wow, thank, mm-hmm. uh, what, do I, what do I need to do? And then they followed up with, if you continue to do stuff exactly like this. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is amazing. I know exactly what to do. I was right. 11, 11, 11 years old. Yeah, I think they now call that the the school to prison pipeline. Or yeah, something like that, <laughs> I was like, right? like you you were on a the turbocharged ride right into so the heart terrible. of that. Yeah. So how how long do you end up? How much time do you end up spending throughout your youth in in juvie? I went in and out. Um, so I went from the crisis center to um, foster care to uh-huh. youth youth home to group home and then to work camp. And then to youth prison was kind of my journey. Right. And so how old were you at that point? So I was uh, 13 when I got to youth camp, Uh which was one step before youth prison. Right. And so, you know, paint me the picture. Like what's the, what's a day in the life and in that experience all about? It just, I was, I was a young kid. I had no idea what was going on and they would just move Mm -hmm. me from place to place. And I'd meet new families and they were nice. Like they were, you know, at that time it was a religious-based community that was kind of supporting that side of social services. Uh So it was Christian science and it was Mormons. It was all these wonderful families. And I'd show up and just train wreck them. I felt so bad Uh uh, in hindsight, Um, but I was just traumatized. So I try to fit in, I try to figure it out. I try to, you know, integrate and then something would happen and I'd freak out emotionally and I'd break you know, I'd escape, I'd mm-hmm. steal something, I'd steal a car, I'd steal the van, I'd take everybody in the group home. Right. Like I would do something just completely jacked to make sure that they would come get me and move me to the next place. Mm-hmm. And then each time it would be- It would an, escalate. Increase yeah. in security and increase in, in, you know, lack of resources or lock up, you know, resources. And each time it would be closer to, you know, what I realized would be prison. Yeah, and are you, were you getting like any kind of, psychiatric or psychological help along the way? Cause clearly like this pattern is emerging and you need help. Like you need somebody to talk to and they're just kind of shuffling you about, right? Hoping for the best when they're not, they're not actually, nobody's yeah. actually confronting like There's what's no, making you behave that yeah, way. There was no resources for that. Yeah. And there was, that was thrown back on the families, you mm-hmm. know, they were providing that support, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of be families. Right. So, so all right. so 
playing it forward, then what you know? How does this play out? Like you're you, basically you just you're in this cycle of like increasingly you know worse and worse situations in terms of your behavior. Yeah. But like you know, where are you at 18 years old, and you know what's going on at that point? Well, when I was 16 and a half, my son was born, and then That's within right, yeah. within six to eight months, I was in prison, jail, and sort of going on to the kind of youth prison thing. Uh-huh. Um, What'd you do that time? Oh man, I was I I was stealing stuff. I'm just. I was just a, a wreck of a like I was just a right, wreck just of a human being. Stupid bullshit. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it was it was just about being a wreck of a human being. Like it wasn't about anything. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't making money. It was just being, you know, as as bad as I could be for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I was seventeen. I got arrested uh, for stealing a bunch of stuff, and then I went to youth jail, and then they put me in jail afterwards and then basically they're like listen you're 17 you're an emancipated minor you're married because you're an emancipated minor and you're going to be tried as adult so all this from moving forward is going to be adult time adult actions and adult um commitments and then and i thought they were like the same old stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. hey, go on the game. So it wasn't like, go. oh shit, just got real. Like no, it was just, it wasn't okay. real until I was in prison yeah. for about a year and mm-hmm. I did all this stuff and wrote all the things, told all the stories. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, they're serious. Like I'm not going to get out for, you know, another two and a half years. So what prompted you to start kind of journaling and, and getting real with yourself? It was my son's birth. It was him being born. I'd never had a father. Like I just never had anybody there. And then Joe came along, but it was weird and adversarial. And I wasn't like mm-hmm. connected to the fatherness. And it wasn't until I was in my, you know, when I was 13 to 15 that I had a dad, you know, Bob Shamrock came along and I was like, ah, oh, I right. got this father figure. So when my son was born, I was like, this is my only chance to influence his life and be a dad. Like, this is it. And I'm in prison. And I was like, that's like, all this stuff that just happened to me. And I go, dude, that, I have to change that. You're just gonna repeat that That was it. I go, hey, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm, the, I'm my dad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah. So I just, I opened up the notebook and I was like, no. I go, how do I change it? Mm-hmm. And first it was, how do I get out of it? Because mm-hmm. that was what I was taught. And that didn't work. So mm-hmm. then it was, how do I take responsibility and figure it out and move forward? It's interesting that you decided to just start writing. Like, where do you think that impulse came? Like, just there was nothing else to do, or like this is the only thing that you actually have control over is to start. I think it was it down my first voice. I think it was my first mm-hmm. communications that were real, because I was writing down what was real. In the beginning, it was just all the horrible stuff that was happening. What am I going to do? And and then it was how do I get out of these things? And then it was, you know, real plans. And then it was legal writs. How do I get out of this? You know, mm-hmm. with the law, and how right. do I use the rest of it? Um, but I also, you know, once I sat there for a year, and I was like, I'm not getting out. Like nothing I can do, say. There's no because before I could show up, I could dazzle them. I'd be listen. I was right. locked in closets. You don't yeah. understand how terrible it's been. And they'd <laughs> yeah. be like, Wow, that's really terrible. Uh-huh. You know, we should help you. And after about you know four years of that, people were like, No. You know, you've stolen everything, done, you're not, you're so what you say you are. Mm-hmm. So it became my responsibility to say, to, to be what I said I was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so whatever I wrote down, I was like, I'm gonna be that dude. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna do the thing. I'm gonna be honest, like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna tell the thing. Yeah, I mean, but there had to be, like there was an impulse inside of you 
that was telling you like, I'm not this guy, I don't need to continue down this path. I mean, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, probably I would imagine most people, that system just breaks them down. And then they're just, I'm a piece of shit and this is what my life's gonna be like. And they just sort of, you know, wave the white flag and, and just take it, you know, but there was something inside of you that, that had a vision for a different life. Yeah, and uh, part of it was I would see my friends come and they're the same friends that were at the beginning of the cycle. And we'd all be in prison together. I'd be like, whoa. It's like, it's happening to him too. Mm. And I was like, it's, mm -hmm. it's right there. And I could see it. And it, it, it became the example of like, this is what you're not supposed to, like you're not supposed to do this. Right. And you'll be so done. Uh, and then, you know, I had somebody, I had Bob Shamrock. Yeah, you had I, Bob. So you had met Bob earlier, right? Yeah, and when I was 13 or 12, almost 13, I went to his group home. Uh-huh. And so he was taking kids in and he was training people to be fighters. And well, that was kind of like, he not was at just that point or athletes. Yeah. But okay. he, he did have that ritual of if you had beef with somebody, you dealt with it. Mm -hmm. And that was in the swimming pool. Right. In the was, pool? <laughs> yeah. You literally put the gloves on and everybody stood in a circle and then you went at it and then you guys the hugged pool. it out. And the uh -huh. only rule was that when it was over, you hugged it out and it was over. Uh huh. So when you were there, when you were, 13, yeah. how many kids were there at that point? 20, 21, 22. That's kind of amazing that he was taking boys. kids in. Like what, yeah. I mean, what yeah. compelled him to, you know, begin doing that? He was, it, those were his kids. You know, he couldn't have kids. Him and his wife tried and, you know, um, he was deeply religious. And, you know, he grew up in LA. Uh, you know, his dad had a textile mill and business and was very successful and they, you know, he saw downtown, you know, and the homelessness and he always wanted to help that community. So when we couldn't have kids, he was like, these are gonna be my kids. I'm gonna start a home, I'm gonna help mm -hmm. the kids. Mm -hmm. And originally they were just gonna be, you know, the kids, they weren't gonna adopt them. They weren't gonna, you know, make them family, family. Right. But, um, you know, when his marriage fell apart and, and his wife left, you know, that became his family. We right. became his family. Yeah, that's amazing. So you have that we experience like and then- it was crazy. Like yeah. We were a giant family in a huge van. Uh -huh. like it was the craziest thing you know you could imagine. We were like the wild boys, uh -huh. uh, but it was all with the goodness. Like you know, we would clean up the parks. Like we would wow. play the football team. We would play the cops. You know, we were. He believed like through athletics and through like family and like you know accomplishment. Like you could you know really do anything. Like you mm -hmm. could build anything. So when you when you finish with prison, how do you end up back with him? Like, did he come and get you or? He never left. So he always advised me and he uh -huh. always visited and wrote me and sent me, you know, money and encouragement and, you know, uh, you know, kept track and, um, y you know, and he also advised me, you uh -huh. know, he was the one who was like, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Right. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, mm -hmm. what do I got? The only thing I got is this body. You know, I built up this body, you know, I've done this thing and, because uh, he really believed in athletics and bodybuilding and uh, he always guided me on that path. So I spent those three and a half years in prison, you know, super nerding out on bodybuilding and lifting weights. Uh -huh. So by the time I got out, like I was 220, solid, yeah. uh -huh. all natural, you know, how prison much, food. Like, like yard time insane. did you have? Like, they, could you just work out all day or like how? <laughs> you, I mean, you get, you get by law, because I'm a super nerd, by law, you get an hour a day if you're in beneath maximum security. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I got an hour a day at minimum, mm -hmm. but I would get three and four hours a day. Plus I would always work in the kitchen. So I made sure I could have the calories to support what I was doing. And I was working out, 
you know, hour and a half, two hours a day, six days a week. So like an hour in the yard, but then back in your cell also push-ups and that kind of thing, or? Mm, I didn't do a lot of uh, extra like calisthenic stuff at that time until I got into my minimum security stuff and I was running like a fire crew and like a whole other team. Um, in the beginning, I just lifted weights. Like, cause I was also in level four. I mean, Charles Manson was like one yard over. Whoa. When I first got went down, uh -huh. I was like 18 years old. I got to Corcoran and they're like, yeah, Charlie's over there. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I just lifted heavy um, until, you know, for, for three years. And then, yeah. then I got to minimum security and then I kind of changed my whole structure. But what I would do was I would stretch. I would always stretch and try to keep myself limber because mm -hmm. I was packing on muscle. It just went, right. it was crazy. Mm -hmm. All you do is sleep and read and, and lift weights and right. walk so around you're... the yard and flex your muscles. <laughs> like there's nothing to do. Uh -huh. And I would imagine there's a lot of energy going into you know alliances just to survive, right? Yeah. Like who are you hanging out with? Who's watching your back? Whose back are you watching? Like all that. I mean, look, my only you know frame of reference is what I see in movies and on television or other people that I've had on the podcast. But yeah, you know it's that's pretty... got to take a psychic toll. Yeah, it's pretty real. And I, I mean, I grew up alone, obviously, uh -huh. you know, with and without family. So, um, and then when I went, when I first went to jail, like I didn't know that I was brown. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I grew, everybody around me, my wife, my, my, my mom, everybody was white. So I thought I was kind of white. And then when I first went to jail, they were like, listen, man, you can't just be hanging out with white people. Uh -huh. Like, what's your race? And I go, well, everyone around me is white. And I'm like, yeah, you're brown. So in the beginning, they were like, you're Mexican. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't really, uh -huh. like, we're not like Mexican. Right. So um, when I went to prison, I was encouraged to hang out with the Mexicans. And I was like, I'm not Mexican. So I went and hung out with the Indians, with others, mm. because they're of a culture that's just, you know, whatever you are, you are. If you're mm -hmm. Hawaiian, you're Polynesian, you're Indian, you're in that group. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, made it a little bit easier and a little more, bit more challenging for me. Uh, when I was doing time because right. I was easily attacked in that group because there's not a lot of power and there's not a lot of strength in that group. Uh -huh. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. 
Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I can't imagine, man. I mean, it's it's just so crazy that you got through that, you know, and then ultimately end up with Bob and you come out 220, what you were jacked up. I right? was, <laughs> I was two, I was probably 218. 218. 218, uh-huh. you know, I'm 5'10", uh-huh. just all natural, just rah, huger than huge. And, um, you know, I, when I got out, Bob, Bob picked me up and he basically gave me this, this super dad, she pep talk. And he's like, listen, you've, 
you've screwed up your life, but he's like, you've just made this huge commitment and he lined off all these things as I did when I was in prison. He's like, you got educated, you went to college, you know, you lifted weights. He's right, like, you went to college in prison, I went right? to college in prison. Like I had all these things wow. and he's like, and you, you know, he's like, you could fix sheet metal and cars. And cause I was like a super nerd that was mm -hmm. locked up. I was like, I'll take everything. I'll do anything to get out of here. You know, cause I didn't realize I was screwing up until I screwed everything up and then I was stuck. Uh -huh. And then I was like, oh hell no. And I was going to get out. Um, but you know, he's like, listen, you, you could, you could be an athlete, like you could be a performer, you could do this, you know? Um, and by the time my brother had just had a successful career as a stripper. Right. So he's literally- This is Ken, right? This is yeah. Ken, yeah. Uh -huh. So he's like, you could be a stripper like your brother. He's like, right. he made a ton of money. And he tells me the whole story and I'm like, okay. And he's like, <laughs> or your brother's also doing this wrestling thing now and it's totally taken off and he kind of breaks it down to me. And it makes it sound like it's sport, wrestling, grappling, fighting. Right. And I'm like, okay, so, I get out, I have two days out. And then the second day he drops me off at the dojo. And he's like, you know, he's like, what are you gonna do? And I go, I'm gonna be a fighter. I'm not gonna be a stripper. I, that can't, that's right. ridiculous. And <laughs> just go, for clarity. Other than good yeah. strippers. <laughs> but I was like- Well, you could have some yeah. short-term cash, you know? <laughs> yeah, I had this huge long uh, hair. So, right. I mean, I totally, I could see where he just was coming like from. Like the Chippendales yeah, thing. I right. could see where the where the money was coming from, but I was like, I don't like, you know, can't do that. I can't do that. It's just not me. And and Ken, so just for clarity, Ken is Bob's adopted son, who then becomes your adopted adoptive brother because and first Bob adopts you. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and then first teacher and trainer. Right for fighting. And and it seems like this all happens pretty quick. Yeah. Right. So you go to the dojo, and was it immediately like this is my home? Um. No, it took me a long time to get adjusted to it mm -hmm. because I think because I just come from prison. So I had this very closed, you know, I was living in books and the special world and working out all day and flexing on the yard and living this other existence that's very sub world. And then when I got into the fighting thing, it's a whole other sub world where you, there's no time to do anything else. Like you just focus everything on the thing and then you're always tired and exhausted. So I just tried to show up. Mm -hmm. I can, and like not die. And I think people appreciated that. And then I think people were turned off by it because I, yeah, I looked like a tough guy, but I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So they would just beat me up. And, you know, I was, I was a waste of space when I first started because uh -huh. I looked you, like I could had value, but I had zero. You're walking around like, <laughs> you know, you got all the answers, value. right? <laughs> <laughs> but you, it's not like you were a wrestler in high school. Or, no, I did nothing. You, you didn't, yeah, you didn't I have know, any of that kind of, you were no. just, you were just I never big. made more than like two days of wrestling camp and I'd get thrown out because mm -hmm. I'd get in some fight or something terrible would happen or some, you know, emotional breakdown or something ridiculous. So yeah, I never made a sport longer than a week. And Before so what kept you in? Was it just, this is the only thing I that got was going? It. Yeah, that was it. It's this or nothing. That was it, that's all I had. You know, and I thought, okay, wait, I could get out and I could use these sheet metal, you know, certifications that I got, or I could go do this thing that I got, uh -huh. but I'll never have that thing. Like I'll never, right. and my thing was, my dream was to be a world champion. You know, my dream, you know, there was a few moments in my life where I remember complete clarity and those divinations where I was like, this is what I'm gonna be when I become who I wanna be. And that was watching boxing at the foot of my stepdad's bed huh. and watching him fight and win and then, you know, be a champion and then deliver a moment, you know, and have everyone be focused on that moment. And like, I just remember that. And I was like, I'm gonna be that guy. 
So you had you held that vision even though you're getting your ass kicked. Oh, yeah. And even when I was in prison, even all through this journey of so like, before that, even. Of living in the streets, like eating out of trash, all this stuff. I was like, you don't understand. Someday, and it was deep. Like there was no efforts towards it until I got out of prison. There so what no, do you make of that? I mean, where does that where does that come from? I mean, I think a lot of people would just be like, uh, you know, my life's gonna. This is my life, and it sucks. But I, yeah, I think. It, it, if you never give up on that thing, then it's totally worthwhile. But to even have the idea to begin with. But everybody has the idea. Right? Everyone has the idea. You think so? Yeah, I ask my daughter in the mornings, what do you dream about? And she tells me. Mm-hmm. And they're the, sa- they're the same dreams. She wants to be next to Zendaya, dancing and singing wow. and do, you know, hitting the movements on Disney Channel. Because in her world, that's where she got inspired so it's like it, all she wants from me is to create that right but Give she has she has your support she has you saying well let's yeah. like make this happen totally. right whereas you get you have the world beaten down on you yeah but i also developed and got into this system mm-hmm. and martial arts was the first one right you know martial arts was the was the family so when you hit that dojo are you thinking well i'm gonna even though you're getting your butt kicked like i'm gonna make a career out of this i'm gonna find a way to make money or you i mean you must have thought well i, I can go do this was. and learn i'm getting my ass kicked like i gotta make some cash <laughs> like maybe i should do the sheet metal thing on the side or you I know at least it, get something else going on i, I honestly thought it's all there was because I also knew, like, who's going to hire me? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have like 24 felonies. Like, you know, it's like ridiculous. Like, there's no, I have no real uh, yeah. <laughs> qualifications for anything other than teaching people to beat people up and helping inspire people. But the it. thing is, like, the, there's there's something so powerful about just being all in. Like yeah. you're just all, there is no other route. There's no plan B. Like, this is what I'm doing. Even though like, I'm just learning and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm getting my ass kicked. Like I'm here. Yeah. Well, I think that's what the beauty of the whole system is and how it works. It's like when you show up, mm-hmm. it's like when I show up and I'm, and I humble myself to a mentor, you know, who, who sometimes has been, uh, I've been a fan of, or they've been a fan of me or, like there's all kinds of roles that we play, mm-hmm. but to show up to a plus and to be like, listen, man, I'll, I'll clean your floors, dude. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> show me the thing and I'll, I'll, I'll be over here, you know, I'll serve right. you. Right, you, you, you have to have that humility. Yeah. Right, Does, do, do you, did you learn that humility through fighting or through just life experience? I learned it through the fighting. Yeah. Because it's, it's the, I learned everything on the example. Mm-hmm. Everything on the real, as I call it. Right. So it's like, uh, how do you figure out what's bad? Do all the bad stuff and they'll send you to prison. You'll guarantee, <laughs> I can tell yeah. you exactly what's bad and we'll end you up in prison. Uh-huh. And then conversely, I can tell you exactly what's good. Um, but it's only through the experience of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. Once, you've, once you have people that have done the experience, you don't really have to go on the journey. You can find somebody who went on the right. journey and well, be like, hey, buddy. What's funny is that you're like this bookish, nerdish, nerdy kid who's like academically inclined and is reading all these books. Like you could have learned these lessons, you know, on the written page, but you yeah. had to have it, you had to experience it for yourself. Yeah. But I think it's because my social and family situation was so dysfunctional. Yeah. So of course, when reality's backwards, then you do the backwards, right? Yeah. So you I mean, go, it's almost the like there way. was a there was a, a vacuum of free will, like you were yeah. headed in that direction until something intervened. 
So, all right. So you're 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 learning. You're in the dojo. You're you're training your butt off. Uh, so you know where does the first fight come up? Like, you, I mean, you hit the ground running. It seems. Like, I, I mean, just the I way did, the way yeah. it reads online, it's sort of like this yeah. just kind of happened overnight. It it did. It did. Uh, partly because, I mean, it took me like two weeks to heal up from the tryout because mm-hmm. Ken, the tryout's like insane. You do. Uh, 500 squats, sit-ups, push-ups, and leg lifts, and then you spar a professional fighter for 20 minutes. Uh-huh. And mine was Ken, because he's like, well, I'm gonna, he's my brother, I'm gonna do him right, you know, honor, chi. <laughs> and he just beat the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took me a couple of weeks to recover. Um, and then that time I just, you know, I accepted what I was, I accepted what I was gonna do to the, to the max of what I understood. So I, you know, during those two weeks, I changed my mind. I went, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm jacked up, but I'm going to become a professional fighter and this is my chance. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go all in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as soon as I healed up, I just started training and taking notes. And I took the same mindset that I had in prison, which was I was, I was needing to overcome this thing. You know, I was stuck. It mm-hmm. was trapped because I didn't have. And, um, and this was the path. Mm-hmm. And I just... I followed the path. I showed up every day. I studied. I was, you know, I created theories and ideas and concepts and I asked questions and they beat me up because I asked questions and <laughs> because it, it, you know, there was a culture before that where you didn't ask questions. Right. You followed the, you followed the rhythm and the flow and the thing and the, the, the curriculum. And so I was uh, unbeknownst to me against the system a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, a bit abrasive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit abrasive. <laughs> <laughs> What, but asking too many I'm questions? Like, I was a nerd. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. but what about this? They're like, beat them up some more. I'm like, oh, no. Right, right, <laughs> But right. I didn't learn because, you know, normally, you know, you, if you want someone to stop asking questions, you beat them up a few times and they stop asking questions. Uh-huh. But for me, I was so used to getting beat up because I didn't know anything. And it was all part of the journey that I was just like... I'll fully accept that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like getting a spanking when you like doing something when you know you're going to get a spanking when it's right, a kid. Right, like right. I would do that right. because I knew like I'm going to get the answer or part of it and then a beating. And I'm like, that's all right. I'm totally worth that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, I know how to do the beating part. I can survive. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm super strong. But kind of what I infer between the lines with this is, is like this deep sense of personal responsibility. Like, <clears throat> yeah, you have Bob and now you have Ken and, and you've got this community at the dojo. But this understanding, like the only person who's gonna be able to solve this dilemma of life that I'm in is me. And, and the only way out of this situation to a better life is through, and I have to rely on myself and my own, you know, my brain and my body and my mind and my spirit. And, 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 and within that, like this idea of just doubling down, like going all in completely and, and resting all the responsibility for that path on yourself. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's the only way. Mm -hmm. I think you'll find uber successful people in sports and everything else have the same mindset, Mm -hmm. drive, you know, persona, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Mine was from a place of desperation and and survival and and all the other stuff. But all many of my other friends, you know, it comes from a place of competitiveness and, you know, self-achievement and community achievement. So on the competitive aspect of it. Do you see yourself as somebody who is competing, or at least at that time, like competing against others to be better than other people? Or was it more of an internal thing, like competing against yourself to be the best version of you? Uh, It was both for me Mm -hmm. because I was also leading the sport or trying to lead the sport. So 
you know, everyone was eventually studying me. Um, and, and it was also based on survival. Mm-hmm. So like I had to win, like right. I always had to win. <laughs> right. Cause I was also going with the notion of like, I'm going to fight to the death. So therefore I have to win because, you know, I'll exhaust all remedies. So I had this, you know, always super intense intensity about my competition. Um, and then, yeah, I'm sure that came from internally, you know, right. cause that, I, 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 you know, all I ever wanted was that thing. Do you know what I mean? And, and imagine having it right there. Mm-hmm. And all you gotta do is beat somebody up or all you gotta do is work really hard or all you gotta do is, you know, really truly apply yourself. And for whatever reason, you know, God, the world, Bob, it was all laid out in front of me mm-hmm. and I just had to achieve it, you mm-hmm. know, go down the journey. So how long before, from the first moment that you walk into the dojo to your first competitive fight? Eight months. Eight months. And yeah. what happened in that fight? I won. I beat, <laughs> I beat Boss Rudin. Yeah. In, in 10 minutes by decision, mm-hmm. um, technically. And um, and it was just instantly, I went from nobody to superstar. Suddenly like everybody's star. talking about yeah. you. That's, that's so crazy. I mean, how yeah. how did you get such a prestige fight right out of the gate? Like, I, didn't you have to, it would seem like you'd have to work your way up to a fight like that. Well, Pancrase was a fairly new organization. It kind of gone through the first cycle of stars. So they were looking for a new kind of generation of stars. And we just all happened to come along in this new tournament mm-hmm. that was made to build the next wave of stars. And Boss was like my counterpart. Ken, you know, I was Ken's brother uh-huh. in the U.S. And he was Boss Rudin. And he had beaten superstar. Ken, right? So um, it was sort of pinned as a, like a grudge match kind of thing? He hadn't beaten Ken yet. They hadn't matched up yet, I don't think. Uh-huh. Um, but he'd knocked out a ton of people and he was very dangerous. I didn't know who he right. was. I came out of nowhere. I'm like a young nerd from prison. Every right. time I asked somebody, I'm fighting Boss Root, and they're all like, oh, and they would look down at the ground. I'd be uh-huh. like, this is just terrible. Yeah, but there's something great about that naivete, <laughs> like when you don't know, yeah. you know what I mean? And you can go into it with like a purity. In hindsight, it's horrifying right. because- <laughs> Yeah, but had you known, had you been able to fully appreciate the situation you were in, you know, the fear might have gotten the best of you. Yeah. You well, know? in hindsight, it's horrifying because I just wrestled this past New Year's in Japan and like this kind of crazy grappling match. And I saw that generation that I was, 20 years old, no, no, no idea what's going on, the fear uh-huh. and the all that stuff going on. I was like, I can't believe I did all that. Like yeah. I can't believe I went through that and and came out like you know, halfway okay, like right. that's insane. So speaking of Japan, when do you, you end up going to Japan, was it after that fight or before? Well, that fight was in Japan. Oh, it wasn't my Japan. next, I, uh-huh. I think 16 fights were in Japan. But you, you, so you lived there for a while though, right? Yeah, well, uh-huh. I went there. So after six months of training, I moved to Japan. Uh-huh. And then I finished my training in the Japanese dojo. Right, and, and what was there. the style of fighting that you were learning there? Uh, Pankrace or um, what they would call submission, submission fighting, mm-hmm. submission grappling style. Mm-hmm. And was that different than what was going on in the States? Like, why did you go to Japan? Uh, that's where the money was. And that's mm-hmm. where the, the developed leagues were. You know, we were on a you know, 20 city tour. Um, and, uh, and then that's where the contacts were. That's where the opportunity was. Mm-hmm. In the States, it was still like UFC was just about started or just had started. And it was a tiny audience that was doing good numbers on pay-per-view, mm-hmm. but it was nowhere near the revenues that were, were coming in Japan. At that point, yeah. yeah. And, and what did you learn kind of about being immersed in that culture that helped you as a fighter or as a human? 
Uh, I, I actually learned a lot because, I, you know, if you, if you position that against, I just came from prison. Like I was been sitting in prison for three and a half years. And before that, I was a complete criminal, like living on the streets and just doing everything horrible you could ever imagine. So I, uh, it was this weird moment where I went from the fear and quietness of prison and the focus to this other fear and quietness in Japan. Cause I've never left the country. Like I'd never done anything like this in my life. And all right. of a sudden I'm on parole going to live in Japan and finish my martial did arts. You ha- like, did you have to clear that with your parole oh, officer? Wrote, like oh, how'd they let you go oh, to Japan? This is the greatest letter writing of my life. <laughs> yeah. Like I had to prove that it only exists in Japan. It's an emerging sport, the revenue. Mm-hmm. Like there was all this, you know, preparation and stuff. My, my, my skills, you know, after prison were put to good use. Um, but yeah, I went to, I went to Japan on parole and finished my career of training. Um, and it was just, it was a crazy wake up because no one spoke English. Hmm. So every day was, it was the same quietness that was in prison, but it had this whole other intensity because I was going to fight this guy. I knew I was going to fight the guy. The minute I landed, like, you're going to fight the guy. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was all leading to this moment. So it was a very intense, you know, two and a half months where everything was just every single day. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, it's coming. And then I'd be like, who are you fighting? And I'd be like, Boss Root. And they'd be like, oh, and they'd look Whoa. down and I'd be like, this is the whole, <laughs> like, I'm so scared. Yeah. And then uh, luckily Funaki and Suzuki, the older uh, teachers of the dojo, basically Ken's role uh, for us in the States, you know, they they took me under their wing and they showed me the basic stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, they basically saved my life as I see it, because mm-hmm. I was not prepared to fight Boss Root when I, when I landed in Japan, mm-hmm. it was going to kick my face off. Right, but you somehow you 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 beat this guy. I don't know how you did that, but you do, and and you know you're launched into you know immediately into mainstream awareness as the this new talent, right? And and as I understand it, you're kind of um, looked at as somebody who could excel in all the various disciplines of mixed martial arts, right? Like. I'm a triathlete. Like my analogy to that would be, you know, in the in the sort of earlier days of triathlon, there'd be the guy who was an amazing runner in college, and then he didn't really know how to ride a bike or swim, but he could he, he was doing really well because he's really good at one of those three things. But today, as the sport has matured, you have to be you have to be amazing at all three of them, or you're out, right? And yeah. And so when I was reading about you, I was thinking, well, you were you were kind of like one of the first guys who was. Who could who could excel across the board in all the many different kinds of styles of fighting and disciplines that are required to excel in MMA? Is that, yeah, is that totally? Yeah, fair? I was the yeah. first complete athlete mm-hmm. um, because that's where the study took me. Mm-hmm. Um, the need was to create a system, a la Bruce Lee, where you did the most amount of damage with the least amount of effort to yourself, right. uh, and you could win under the skill set under the rules. So uh, the rules were ever evolving, as was the athlete in the sport. Uh, I was the first like super athlete mm-hmm. uh, that could fight. I only say could mm-hmm. fight because I had more techniques than the other super athletes. Um, and then I was the first guy to put a whole system together where I was good at punch, kick, wrestle, knee, you know, position. Um, eleven of uh, my last eleven fights all finished differently because it doesn't matter where you're from or what position you're in. Everything has. Equal mm-hmm. damage opportunity if you have the right system. And the system that you put together was this something that you crafted yourself, like a, as part of the like, hey, I have a new idea or a different idea, or is this something you learned from the Japanese? Pure survival. It was an, a, an amalgamation of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. 
So as the sport continued to evolve, in the last seven or eight years of my career, I was focused solely on striking because the five years before, the sport was focused solely on grappling. So uh -huh. all the focus turned somewhere else. Um, so I turned my attention elsewhere to develop my skill elsewhere. Right. Um, but it was about staying ahead of the sport and staying ahead of the development and the, the popularity curves in the sport. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in trying to stay ahead, I just put together a complete system because I kept facing everybody mm -hmm. and their skill would be somewhere else and then it would be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of, I'd say 15 years, I had a complete fighting system that would you know, stand up to any, any system, any martial art, any adjusted martial art. Right, so grappling, striking, on the mat, no matter what it is, like yeah. you're, you're able to like manage Anywhere. it, right? Yeah. And at that time, was it true that like most of the fighters were, they would be good at one of these things, but you always knew what their weakness was. Yeah. Right? And you could kind of exploit that to your benefit. Yeah. Because yeah, in the beginning, it was singular martial arts. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, I'm a karate guy or I'm a wrestler. Um, and I'm going to use that skill set as a base, you uh -huh. know, to, to gain control. Right. Um, yeah. And I would just study, I didn't know any better. You know, to me, um, I didn't know you, what you weren't not supposed to do or what your system was supposed to have. So I had no rules. Uh -huh. So I was just surviving. Right? So every other <laughs> system's like, don't go to your back. I'm like, wow, uh -huh. go to your back. I'm, I'm on my back. You know, if it's easier to move, I'm going to go there. Um, so I just rewrote and wrote my own system. And I used all the strengths of the other martial arts that were around me mm -hmm. and that oftentimes were being tested against me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these martial arts skills that I learned were, I'm going to fight so-and-so, they're really good at this. I'm like, well, let's study that. What does that mean? And then we'd figure out new stuff around that. Mm -hmm. And we'd add that to the system. Yeah, interesting. And I'd go out and kick their butt and right. defeat them. And then be like, well, it works. Right, right, we'd, right. We'd keep it in the system. Right. And, and within that is kind of an appreciation for really trying to figure out <clears throat> what your own personal weaknesses are, right? And focusing on developing them as opposed to, well, I'm a, I'm a striker, I'm a grappler, so I'm going to double down on that because that's what I know how to do. Um, but instead to say, well, here's where I can develop where I'm weak that would make me this super athlete and be able to perform in all the various you know, capacities that I need to, to go to the top. Yeah, that's the harder journey. Yeah. The facing all the, the weaknesses. Well, no one wants to work fears. on their weaknesses. Hey, let's show up and all know? work on our weaknesses today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, but that's the real stuff. You know, that's what, that's what they really do. Right. You know? And well, I, would, I would just have guys who'd be like, before we knew, you know, I'd just be like, listen, put me in the wall, put these gloves on, punch me in the head. Uh -huh. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, well, I got to figure this out. Nobody's uh -huh. got a theory. And I was like, so punch me in the head a few times. And like, I'm going to work this out. Uh -huh. And they'd be like, you're insane. I'd be like, but somebody's got to figure this out. So rather than like finding the coach <laughs> yeah. who knows how to do that, you're just going to, you know, figure it out on your own. Well, I also figured out nobody knew. Because mm. once I started my journey and I started teaching and I started sharing and I started giving... Because I thought that was the natural process to learn more, you give more. Mm -hmm. I started realizing people didn't know, right? And I started people, you know, people would bow up and interrupt and you know change the information. I'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, how do I get out of the wall when someone's punching me in the head? Like that's all I need to know, right? Right. Uh, but they would be distracted uh -huh. by other things because everyone. What I realized, and it was really weird, is I was just on a journey to survive, and. You know, it was changing martial arts at the same time. Yeah, yeah, so there was that's a what's lot interesting. Of resistance in all sports and mm -hmm. all martial arts about the whole thing because mm -hmm. no one knew what was going on and it was mm -hmm. so new and different. Right. It was it's it was so different back then to what it is now. So when you look at the sport today, 
And you see these guys like, I mean, the money aspect aside and the, the media aspect aside, like what's different about the guys that are fighting right now? Like what's different about Conor McGregor versus, you know, what was going on when you were competing? No. Nothing? Zero. Yeah. The, the, the but these guys have, have a... to, in order to win now, they all have to be super athletes, yeah. right? No, no. I mean, the, the here's the beauty of fighting. And I think it holds true in some other sports. Everything works when you're a super athlete. Mm. Everything works. You hit somebody and you're like 190 pounds and you hit them flush, you're going to smash them. So um, as you become a super athlete, it's really easy to rely on things that work, to go down these other paths, to stop developing yourself, to stop on these journeys of exploration that really make you, you know, invincible or undefeatable or mm -hmm. a master or an expert in your field. Um, that's the hardest part. I want to go do what's best and easy and fun. I want to knock people out. And mm -hmm. But the truth is I suck at some things. And those are all the stuff that is like, should be the study, right. you know, should be the focus of the whole moment. Mm -hmm. Because when you get there and you're not ready, then you're going to freak out and lose energy and focus. And, you know, then the machine, everything falls apart. Right. But ultimately that's what you, I mean, that's what you have to do to grow. Right. Yeah. If you well, want like to continue to grow, to you got to focus a, on a, that stuff. As a human being, you don't want, we don't want to, you no. know, you know, we want to take the fat pill. We want to take the easy, we don't, we don't, people don't want to get pushed in a wall and punched in the head to figure out something. That's uh, I don't way too much. That. Yeah. yeah. Someone just give me the that. answer for God's sake. need to punch in the head. I'm done. Do I'm out of here. You're like, uh, I haven't been punched in the head since like seventh grade. So. <laughs> What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
All right, so you go on to be, you, you go on this crazy winning streak, fighter of the decade. Uh, you fight from 94 to like 2010, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, essentially Gosh, undefeated. You have a couple, there was a couple times where you didn't- I went 10 win, years undefeated. 10 years undefeated, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and ultimately uh, you, you retire in 2010 after, was it Nate Diaz or Nick Diaz? Nick. Nick at yeah. the end there. Put a good then, whooping on me. <laughs> <laughs> but he's sort of like the next generation coming yeah. up, right? Yeah. Um, and then you had one fight like a year ago, right? Well, the uh, grappling match. A gra I did okay. grappling, yeah. Why did you come back and, and do that? It, it was totally like left field. Uh -huh. You know, I, I had, I when I was 16, I had this, my right leg went numb, sort of dragging behind me. And I went to the doctor and they said, listen, you got uh, a spondylethiosis in your L3. So you need spinal surgery. Mm. And I was in a group home at the time. So I was like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. And he, my group home doctor uh, dad took me to a chiropractor. And he's like, listen, it's a common injury, but you're gonna have to care for it the rest of your life. Like you gotta keep the muscle built and you gotta do these goofy exercises. So he gives me these goofy exercises. So I do them for 30 years and then it stops working. And I have the worst back pain you could ever imagine. And I'm considering surgery and I'm like Mr. Natural. Like I'm not into anything cutting my body open. So, you know, I'm, I'm going down this deep path of, of surgery. And, and finally I consult with one of my friends and he's like, you gotta see my friend, Dennis. He's like a magic man. And I go and see him in like an hour, he fixes my back. Whoa. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And I go, what's wrong with me? I'm like, and I ask him all about it. And he's like, listen, you're putting too much energy into it. He's like, you, you know, you just need new exercise. Your body's changed, everything's changed. And he's like, let me restructure you. Let me give you these new exercises and send you on your way. And within two weeks, I'm like climbing mountains and kick playing in kickball tournaments and all the stuff that I wanted to be doing, but I was in too much pain to be doing, you know, for like three or four years I'm doing. And I'm like, this is amazing. And so I'm putting out in the universe, like I wanna do stuff with my body and bring phone rings as Japanese promotion. Right. They're like, is there any way you could wrestle Sakuraba, who's my oldest nemesis, like for mm -hmm. 18 years, you know, at this date. And I'm like, maybe. Like I just I tell him the story. I'm like, I just fixed my back. And I'm like, I'm so fired up about it. And, and I go, let me go to the gym and try it out. And I go in and three days later, I call him back and I go, I could probably do this. I go, we're gonna have to modify the rules a little bit because it's not good, uh -huh. but I think I could do this. And, wow. and then I went and did it. So you went and did it. It was yeah. a draw, right? It was a draw, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 10 minutes draw. Yeah, that's cool though. So you were 45 at the time? 45, 45, yeah. right. Yeah. So you're 47 now, 46. Oh, I think I'm still 45. You're still 45. I'm 46. 46. I'm 46. <laughs> All right. Well, this is super interesting to me because I have spondy also. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it hurts, right? It, 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 the pain is not that bad. Um, I was first diagnosed with it maybe in 2010 or something like that. And I'm 51 right now, but I was in the midst of like training really hard. And I was like, ah, it, I didn't have any pain at the time. And I was like, and it was a chiropractor who diagnosed it. And um, I would go to him and I still go to him and I get traction and you know he adjusts me and things like that. But then at this year 51 is like the first year where I've started to really feel my mortality in a way that I haven't. I have a little bit, I have some pain on the left side, like uh, sciatic nerve pain and a little bit of numbness on the top of my left foot. And, uh, and I'm looking for, some new and different things to do. So I'm really interested in what Dennis had you yeah, do. Yeah, go see Dennis. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is he out here? Yeah, he's in uh, Beverly Hills. Oh, he is. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell me what. It, yeah, hook me up with him. Tell yep. me. Tell me what. Uh, what some of the things he was instructing you to do? Well, um, he said one of the, my core things is just uh, as you know instability. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, it's not connected, so it's not all structured, so it's over fatiguing all the time. Um, so when I went in, I was pretty assed out. Like I was, my back had gone out bad. I uh-huh. think I was uh, at all these appearances lined up, and I couldn't. I couldn't get off the. I couldn't get off the ground. It was the first time my daughter had seen me like that. Yeah. So I was like, nah. So, um, and he's basically like, listen, you know, you, you've built all these muscles to support you with the crooked thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we got to release all that stuff, right. kind of restructure you, re- rebalance you. And then he's like, let me show you, the, you know, he's like, you just got to get that tiny, tiny muscle on top of your, <laughs> you know, right on top of your hip. He's like, you just got to get to that muscle. And mm-hmm. he's like, let me show you how to do it. So is it like a lot of psoas type stretching to lengthen out the- Well, what I for me, it's about keeping my hips square and strong. So uh-huh. I do basic, you know, warrior poses and postures and, you know, lunge dances and stuff like that to keep everything aligned. Mm-hmm. But literally for me, I just need to keep that little tiny muscle that sits above your, your uh, hip bone in the back. Right. I just need to keep that strong mm-hmm. because it's not because of the misconnection. Right. So if I keep that strong, everything else feels great. If I skip three days, I literally feel like my back's going to go out uh-huh. and I feel like I'm going to lose a thing here and it's going to pinch and my right leg's going to go numb. Yeah. So you have no numbness now. No, no I got pain. nothing now. That's great. But if I miss, like I, I laid on the couch for two days because yeah, I was so tired it. from the yard work mm-hmm. and it instantly today, mm-hmm. pain and I got tingles in my, um, right. in my leg. Right, but right, what right. I'll do is he showed me the exercise to unlock it to help release the pressure on it. Uh-huh. And so like, I'll get on a table, I'll get in like a sprinter stance and I'll like um, try to pull my heel back and release my hip, like yeah. get it to stretch out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. that will that will <clears throat> take the pressure off and kind of release it if I have it go out. And mm-hmm. I get like this, I'm like, mm-hmm. reject team. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you're all pretty. like lopsided. Oh, and, and I think, you know, for me, just for running for so many years. And, yeah, and, running is a tough one because of the and impact. You, well, it create, yeah, and you develop certain muscles and others yeah. atrophy and you get that imbalance. Yeah. And and then when with the spondy, you start favoring one side over the other and yeah. then that leads to running injuries. There's a whole cascading he, effect. That, he, he spent an hour releasing the rest of my body tension, mm-hmm. which was two other guys with a couple of machines and some other mm-hmm. weird stuff. And I thought at one point it was gonna tear my knee out and I was gonna crap on myself. Uh-huh. But every three minutes, he'd be like, stand up, already. let me look at you. Mm, all right, get back yeah. down, let's adjust this side. Because every time he'd figure out where the tension's left until there was no tension left. And he's like, okay, you're straight. You got no more tension. And he's like, now keep that area strong and you're straight, you're cool. Right. So how long did you have to kind of do this protocol before the pain alleviated? Instant. Oh, really? Oh, Instant. Wow. No, uh-huh. it was, you don't understand. I was laid out, hey, like trying to explain mm-hmm. to my daughter, no, oh, I'm going to be okay. You should never see me like that. Uh, so it's been nine years, you know, or at least five years that she's never seen me this. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, right? No, you know, I'm crawling around the house. Don't touch me, don't touch me, like jacked. Uh-huh. So it was just a big wake-up call. I was like, what am I doing? Like, uh-huh. either I'm going to get this fixed or I- I'm going to figure out an alternative. Yeah. And, and he just happened to have the alternative. So yeah, you 100% got to go see him. Cool. So you feel good now? Yeah. You think you'll yeah. ever, you'll, you'll do another fight? No. 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 I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed the competitive side, but I didn't enjoy the training. And, and then it was last minute, you know, uh-huh. I was like the fill-in last minute guy. So um, there was just, 
It, it wasn't the experience that I wanted, although it was the experience that I wanted. <laughs> what, what, what did you want? What did I, you think I, that you wanted? I just wanted enough time. I wanted to really train. Like yeah. I wanted, you know, you know, four weeks, you know, like I wanted a real training session because I'm old, you know, uh -huh. I don't train. I hike slowly and I do yoga and, you know, I dance at, at galas. Like uh -huh. <laughs> training is very minimal now. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about now. Um, you're doing all kinds of things now, um, but, you know, probably it, is the main thing that you're doing kind of... Uh, uh, mentoring and coaching other people, not not just in MMA, but kind of like life coaching, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. I mean, uh, I don't actually have any people in MMA, except for a few, or one MMA company owner. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's mainly business stuff. Right. I, um, I, I uh, at, the, at the last phase of my career, that had been the Strikeforce era, which would have been the last five years, so 2005 to 2010, I became a league owner and you know, I was the broadcaster. Mm -hmm. I was the consultant. I was really ahead of, of the Strikeforce brand. Uh, and I was also like the main event guy. So um, what I did to kind of get the tools to do that, because I mean, it's ridiculous. Like I was trying to lead this whole league against the UFC and, and get on network television. Uh, as I took a mentor and he had learned, he was 35 years into product development and asset management and mechanics in Silicon Valley. So he's like, a product's a product's a product. And he really taught me how to look at products and businesses and IPs and lifespans. And he just taught me about business. I didn't know about business. I went to college and prison. Like, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned the basics. The University of Leavenworth. Yeah, I, yeah. Did, I didn't get a solid one. So, so this was another level of education. And you know, by that time I had a brand worth, I don't know, like $5 million or something. And, and I was just entering into a phase of you know, huge opportunity. And, um, and that was ownership in the league and these other roles mm -hmm. and stuff. And, and so I just, in the midst of training and doing all the stuff I was doing, I was like, well, I gotta learn this stuff too. And I went down, I went down that journey. And for three and a half years, I, I took an education on how to asset management, project development, uh, pro product development. Um, and then at the same time, I was running a professional fighting team. Right. Uh, and it's all just become now one unit uh, except for nobody's fighting each other <laughs> professionally. Right. Uh -huh. We're all just business professionals. So what's going on with Strike Force now? We sold it to the UFC. Uh -huh. Yeah, we made it, made a super nice exit and uh -huh. um, yeah. That and so, all right, so now you've, you've taken this acumen that you developed as a result of that experience that is sort of, that's the plus and the plus minus equal, right? Like yeah. uh, working with that guy in Silicon Valley who taught you all of these things. And so what is the, when you take somebody on to, to mentor them in the capacity that you do, like, what does that look like? Like walk me through that experience. Uh, well, everyone's at a different place normally, uh -huh. but um, most people are obviously looking for something, some change, some moment, some divination. So usually they're coming in, in search of something. Um, I, the hardest part is finding out what they want or what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So, although they'll tell you, "Hey, here's what I want to do," um, or I would imagine they're stuck often, right? Yeah, everyone, they're yeah, plateaued usually plateaued yeah. somewhere. Usually, you're stuck, and you're like, "What do I do?" And you don't know how to change or transform or make that make that movement. So, usually, I get that. I get them in some role or get them there, and then um, I, I sit down with them. I figure out what their roles and goals are. Like, what do they really want to do? Because we all talk about stuff and we're all doing stuff, but do we really want to do it? Like, is it really what we want to be doing? Um, 
And then once I can figure out what they really want to do, you know, then I can kind of help guide them and and pull out of them what what that dream is. I guess what that thing is. You know, mm-hmm. what what they really really truly want to do what their purpose or what they believe their purpose is. And what do you think it is about your unique experience that that makes like your your tutelage, your counsel a little bit different than what somebody else might somebody might get from, you know, I don't know, Tony Robbins or somebody else who kind of is in that space? Uh I I mean I don't know, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I just I can feel what people and people tell me what they need mm-hmm. and then for some reason i can help uh, visualize and create systems to capture that um and yeah people trust me i think because of my honesty you yeah. know both in my story and um you know, I live, this is my life. Like, it's, <laughs> this is what I do. Right, right, right. I think Tony I, Tony and I, I think Tony Robbins and I share that. Like, I think he came from a place of, you know, wow, we got to help some people. Like, this is important. You mm-hmm. know, we shouldn't let people do or live like this or experience this because mm-hmm. it sucks. But most people either don't know what they want or think they know what they want, but it's not really <laughs> what they want. But here's the thing. They people don't. really, truly know what they want if they sit down and think about it. Yeah, and we don't think? sit down and think about it. Well, because, because we're, we're living, we're, we're living, we're yeah, we're scared. Yeah, we're scared, but we're all and we're and because we're scared, we're living reflexively. Yes. and the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. Yes, and we're taught to and we're raised to seek comfort and luxury and security, and these things are impediments to the things that we really want in life, and also the things that truly will make us happy because it's not about those other things. <laughs> Yeah. So the process of getting somebody to that place like requires them to be, well, I think it goes back to trust. Like they have to trust you, they have to feel comfortable with you. And and you have to create that space that allows them to be vulnerable so that they can tell you what those fears are, right? I mean, yeah, that seems to be the only way to kind of at least address it so that you can move beyond it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, for some reason, I mean, I, I see it because when I read my story, I'm like, what on earth? Yeah. Like, this is the most ridiculous stuff uh, that you can imagine. Um, but I have all those experiences, like, mm-hmm. every, every single one, you know, including <laughs> people are like, well, how do you know about business? I was like, well, my first business experiences, I would get hired to sit at the end of a table at a multi-billion dollar negotiations by billionaires. Uh-huh. So at some point they could be like, yeah, I got Frank Shamrock right here to champ. Right. University of Leavenworth. That was it, like, yeah. nothing else, just to uh-huh. name me and to, to, to show that I was there. But I was sitting there as a young man going, hmm, all right, well, this is how business is done. This is intriguing and yeah. learning about business. Uh-huh. And that was you know, how I now understand, well, wait a minute, this is what business is about and this is how it's done. And you know, these are a lot of the principles that are followed at the highest level of business. Right. Your story is about pain and determination and uh, self-responsibility. Um, these are things that a lot of people you know, like there aren't that many people who have had to confront the kind of obstacles and pain that you had to. And I think most people really just aren't that disciplined, right? They, they didn't go to a dojo in Japan. They didn't have the, 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 you know, hard knock experience that you had growing up. And they also didn't have the kind of um, structure that you were lucky enough to find yourself in later. So how do you, how do you convey to these people the lessons that you learned in a way that they can hear it and then implement it. 
Well, I believe everyone can. Yeah. The only the only thing I did was change my mind. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. I went, wow, <laughs> I I can't do this. Like I screwed up. Yeah. Like I just changed who I what I truly believed about myself. I went, wow, I'm I'm I am a criminal and a liar and a scumbag. Like all that stuff they wrote. I'm truly that person, and I'm going to change it. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. And I think most people don't ever sit down and write that down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I you know. Well, I, I've done a lot of good things and I've done a lot of bad things. But it's like, I think when you face them and you move through them, I think when you're prepared to address them, I call it the secret life. Everybody has, you know, the life they live out here and then everyone has the life they live inside. Right. And when you when you And that life that, that live barrier, in, yeah, that life that they live inside is, is often marked by fears we talked about, but also shame. It's inside okay. because they're afraid if they ever told anyone about that, the that they would lose all their friends and all that sort of thing. So I know in my own life experience, like you have to own that and you have to, you know, in order to move past it, you have to shed a light on it. And that involves talking to someone like yourself or confiding in another as a process of, of, of dismantling it so that you can grow and transcend it. Yeah, and even just addressing it. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's writing it down and going, wow. <laughs> yeah. Sir, double underline, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm long time in recovery and that's, they, they call that in 12 step inventory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you gotta but take an inventory. Brain, even for the brain, like if you try to learn something, you know, there's a million ways to learn. But the minute you write it down, the minute your brain connects with the mechanics of creating and writing, it is so imprinted Mm -hmm. and it has so much value to your brain. And that's why writing, we talked about writing. It's like when you can write, when you can document, when you can note, when you can theorize, it's like that's the stuff where your brain's going "Mm," Mm -hmm. and growing and and changing. And and that's the stuff you want to support, right? You know how hard it is to sit down and write, I'm a loser, I'm a criminal, (laughs) I'm the worst father ever, like I'm just like my dad. You know, I'm I'm really am those people. Like that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And then to make a change to that, like, mm-hmm. but why not? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, why not? Well, I think there's there's the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, and there's the facts of our experience. But some people become overly connected to these stories. Like they get attached to, well, I'm a lousy dad, and I'm a this, and I'm a that, and it becomes a self perpetuating cycle, right? It may be the truth, but it also becomes a pretty accurate predictor of future behavior. So I think the trick is once you're writing it down and you're you're honest with yourself about that, how do you interrupt that cycle? Right? Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy. That's where your community comes in and your mm-hmm. pluses and your minuses and well, let's talk about the, the plus minus. We've, we've been talking about the plus yeah. minus equal thing. We didn't actually describe exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> yeah, we kind of have. It's it, it, to me. It's just it's how I live my life. You know, it's it's the system that I I function on. And uh, for anything I want to accomplish, I find that plus. Mm-hmm. Someone who's done it. Someone who's accomplished it. Someone who's successful at it. Someone who's happy doing it. Whatever it is, and, and I, you know, I present myself to them. I make myself humble. I try to learn from them. And sometimes they say no, <laughs> and then I find my equal, you know, my competitor, my neighbor, my friend, my whatever, the person I want to 
equal my business to or equal my presentation to or my thing to and I find out what they're doing and I befriend them or I embattle them or I <laughs> mm-hmm. I somehow become aware of them and yeah. then I find a minus I find somebody to teach somebody to guide somebody to take my pluses information my equals information and empower them with and I just work that system on everything I do from marriage to business to you know make a film you know, start a PSA. I'm doing a PSA. I'm going to do a PSA, you know, but I called up a guy who's done 500 PSAs. I'm like, buddy, here's what I need. What are you doing a PSA on? On on mental health awareness. Mm. Uh, But I'm like- What inspired you to to do that? um, One of my clients in my talent management business is bipolar. Mm. He's one of my best friends. and, um, And I met him in broadcasting and he's just one of the best broadcasters in the business, but he's bipolar. You know, he's up, he's down, he's crazy, he's locked up, he's not, he's, you know, we're looking for medication. Uh, It's been, you know, a a 10 year journey with him. Um, And I just met him and, you know, no one was caring for him. I was like, well, dude, we can't leave this guy behind. We gotta uh, bring him with us. And, you know, he's been super successful. Uh, But, you know, part of his journey is is becoming a, you know, a social activist and communicating, you know, what he's doing and and how he's doing it you know right so i've seen him i mean he's, yeah he's manic like well he's, yeah anybody who's had any experience yeah. with somebody with bipolar i mean it's a roller coaster ride yeah and it's there's tough a, there's a lot of uh you know education that needs to be done uh not just for those who suffer but for you know everybody out there to kind of understand what that condition is all about because we demonize it in a way that i, I don't think is fair Nah, no, nah, it's challenging because in other cultures it's celebrated, you know, in other cultures it's, it's, it's at least um, recognized as being different. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, they're just different. He's just different. My buddy's different. Yeah. He's amazing, but he's different, you know, and it's like, we got to do different things for him. Uh, but with those different things and with, you know, some nice lifestyle adjustments, I mean, he's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. He's killing it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, part of our PSA campaign is we have this stigma around mental health. You know, people are like, they turn their back. You know, they don't turn and go, well, what do you mean? Yeah. You know, and hey, I've got those calls at 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. And you <laughs> know like, what I mean? Like, who is I, this guy? You know, like, <laughs> I've got yeah. those crazy calls, but yeah. you know, at, at the same time, he's just different. And if he had another disease or another illness, we wouldn't think twice about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd be there supporting him at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd be getting his medicine at 5 a.m. Yeah, but because he's a little quirky, we're like, ah, you know, goofball. You seem like such a sweet guy. I have such a hard time <laughs> picturing you beating the hell out of people. Oh, and that, so, know, like, <laughs> this is the most challenging part. Yeah. You love this, so uh, I had the hardest time hurting people. Uh huh. Like it really, truly weighed on me, and I couldn't understand where it came from. So actually, my first professional fight, you know, no rules fight, I lost it because I couldn't put the hammer down. I couldn't mm. break the leg. I couldn't break the arm. You know, I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't kill him. Like I was mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, this is not, you know, this is not in my soul, you know, even though that was my dream. Yeah. So I had to leave that thing, lose it that. and sit down with myself again and go, wait a minute. I picked up a sword. I'm swinging it in battle and I'm not going to, you know, down anybody and they're gonna down me. Yeah. I'm like, what is, this is the craziest thing in the world. And what I realized, I was just traumatized. You know, the experience of mm-hmm. abuse and all the stuff and the fear. Like I, I was just traumatized by the violence mm-hmm. and I hadn't accepted what it truly was. And I hadn't accepted that that was my my real role. 
I was going to hurt people. Mm-hmm. That was my job. <laughs> and once I did, I was like, well, you know, this is really messed up, but yeah. Yeah, I have to hurt people. That's my job. Yeah. And then I got really good at it. <laughs> and a lot of people got messed up. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but now it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's your nature though, you yeah. know. And and yeah. like I said at the outset, um I'm friends with Mac Danzig and I have the same thing with him. I'm like, he's such a nice guy. Like, and then I watch his, him fight and I'm like, who is that guy? You know, like, I, I was like, whoa, that's what he does. Like, I, I can't even imagine, you know? And I think, I think that's something in, that, that's something I would imagine is kind of across the board with the best fighters. Like they, they, they're working out their angst and their frustration and their aggression and all of that in the training and in the fighting. And when they're walking around in their life, they're cool, you know, and it's it's the guy with the uh, you know tap out t shirt and the hat pulled low <laughs> who's like thinks he's all that, you know, who's tap like aggressive. T-shirt. I'm like, no, the real fighters aren't like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, they get their fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they don't need to. Cool. Well, we got to wrap this up here in a minute, but um, I thought it would be cool to kind of leave people with some some insight, perhaps a little inspiration or some tools for somebody who is in that place of, of, of fear or living reflexively and is not happy and perhaps can't see their way out to the next thing or is disconnected from what it is that they really want to do or the person that they really want to be. And as somebody who has overcome so much and, and is living such a huge life in so many different ways now, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, wh- what would you impart to that person? I would start with um, looking inside and writing it down. Mm-hmm. And for for a lot, do you of still people, do that, by the way. Oh, do you, every do you day, still, still. So still. what's your what's your tactical process? Um, I start every day when I wake and I come to consciousness. I instantly begin my prayers, mm-hmm. and I thank God for <laughs> waking me up once again and 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 the day and um, and then I. Uh, go into anything I think is important to talk to God about in the universe. And then I, uh, and then I meditate and I visualize what I want my day to look like. Mm-hmm. And that's before I get out of bed every single day. Yeah. And then that's, you're, that's how you're, I start. You, you seem like you're really good at visualization. Yeah. I can see the stuff, mm-hmm. but it's because what, what I put in my brain is the stuff and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people go astray is they put all this other crap in their brain when if they really truly want something, that's the only thing that should be in their brain. Mm-hmm. That's all you really need. Yeah. That's what'll make you happy. That's your dream. I don't think we're selective enough with what we allow through that sieve, you know, especially with our mobile devices. We're just we're polluting ourselves with a lot of content, but not a lot of intentionality about what that is and what it what it's actually doing to us yeah. mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Yeah, it wears out your Wears out your spirit and your mm-hmm. soul. But if you wanna change it, all you gotta do is turn this stuff off and get in yourself and mm-hmm. take some time and meditate. And you know, the best meditation is when you can add something physical to it. You know, we can create some martial, you know, rowing, swimming, you know, something where you're really connected. And if you can add the earth or the universe, like if you can add something of substance to it, like it just gets, you know, better and better. Um, but it's in those moments. You know where you're in your brain and you're really pushing and you're in other settings yeah that you go ah oh yeah that's right <laughs> these are my dreams yeah and then write those down and then find the people 
find the community mm-hmm. find the, and tell them do somebody. the plus minus equal yeah and tell somebody here's mm-hmm. what mo- here's what most people are afraid to do is to tell somebody i'll mm-hmm. tell you all my dreams because i'm actively pursuing them yeah. and crushing them and if i don't we're going to celebrate in the loss or the change or the whatever most people never go here's my dream because they're afraid it's not going to come true right well that once they do that then they're on the hook and then they own you know it. what and i mean it's, and they can't back but, out yeah and, but i say it own it yeah. write it start it get your plus minus equal live by honor respect and discipline be a good person and all of this stuff will happen for you because people will will like you they'll be pleased with you they'll be pleased to be around you and to help you i'm with you frank shamrock i would <laughs> add one thing to that though which is patience yeah gotta be patient um meditation and journaling have been instrumental in my own life and i began i began journaling I, I was using the artist way, like right when I got out of rehab in 1998, and I continue to do it to this day. And I remember doing morning pages, journaling every single day for a long time, just confused, you know. But it was a way of expressing that confusion, and I think it was necessary to get to a place of eventual clarity. But patience is is super important, and I think especially, particularly important in our know, quick fix, life hack culture where everybody wants to snap their fingers and, and make it happen overnight. So patience. And I think, you know, if you're an example of anything, it's it's that, you know, we all are capable of so much more than we allow ourselves to believe. And if you're willing to do the work and be patient and show up and give all of yourself to something, whatever it is, that amazing things can happen. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, cool, man. Great to talk to you. Uh, Awesome. So if you want to connect with Frank, um, the best place to do that, I mean, you got website, Twitter, all that Frank Shamrock. Yeah, I am at Frank Shamrock Mm -hmm. everywhere. And um, yeah, if you have an ask, you can uh, send it to askfrank at frankshamrock.com. Cool. And I'll try to fill your ask if I can. Yeah. And I'll let you know I can. Yeah, and pick up his book, Uncaged, uh, which yeah. I still have to read. I haven't read it yet. You're going to love it. Honestly, I read, you know, book nerd. I read every, I read, uh-huh. I read a thousand biographies. So when I wrote one, I was like, no, I'm going to write the real deal. Yeah. Like no fluff, no, yeah. eh. like I'm going to write what really truly happened. So well, most sports biographies suck. They suck. And they're because all they're, like, they're trying to advance these guys. The, the brand of uh, somebody who's in the twilight of their career. And I like, you know? I hang out with them like, no dude, this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it and I was like, okay, I remember reading all those books as a young man and thinking that's what it's like. And I went, I want to write a book so that they know that's what it's like for real. Yeah. So that's what I wrote. I wrote a book for that kid, you know, or the young man who, you know, it's on a journey. Mm-hmm. So, so hopefully like We're it. all on a journey. I right? know, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully it just continues yeah. on and on. That's the blessing. Cool. That's the blessing. Well, great talking to you. Thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Peace. All right, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Do me a favor, give Frank a shout out on Instagram or Twitter or both at Frank Shamrock and uh, show him a little bit of love. As always, check out the show notes for links and resources related to today's conversation on the episode page at richroll.com. And again, the brand new and revised edition of Finding Ultra is now available. Pick it up where you buy books, paperback, audiobook, ebook, Kindle. If you can't find it in your nation, in your country, we have signed copies available on my website, richroll.com, and we do ship worldwide. 
Also, the Plant Power Way Italia comes out soon, April 24th. It would mean so much if you would pre-order your copy today. And if you're a woman, please make sure to check out the second most recent blog post on my website for a chance to win a free spot in our upcoming retreat in Tuscany, May 19th through 26, 2018. It's a $5,000 value. The contest is only open through April 24th, so jump on it now. If you would like to support my work, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this content. That really does help us out a lot. Only takes a second. Doesn't cost you a thing. And you can also support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. I do not do this alone. I can tell you that. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, and taking my calls in the middle of the night. Uh, Michael Gibson for videoing today's podcast. Blake Curtis for editing the show in video format. Also for creating all the graphics that go along with today's episode. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I'll see you back here in a few days with author Alex Hutchinson. He is the author of the amazing new book, Endure. This one's really great. I think you're going to enjoy it. But until then, hope you guys uh, have a great week. Great couple days, at least. Treat yourself well. Be kind to other people. Love yourself and love others. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.